Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Samir Vasvada and Runik Mahorta of Vise. Vise is a next-generation asset management platform that allows for the development, tracking, monitoring, and testing. The portfolio is made up of individual stocks. And with that, here's my interview with Samir and Runik. Samir and Runik, thanks for taking the time today. Of course. Thank you. Really excited. Thanks for having us. Samir and Runik of Vise, tell us about Vise. Essentially, what Vise is, is we're using AI to automate investment management for financial advisors. So vast majority of financial advisors really struggle to differentiate. They provide their clients the same generic portfolios of mutual funds, ETFs, investments that aren't really personalized to their clients' needs. They're expensive. They're hard to manage. They just don't give their clients much of a reason to succeed. So we've essentially built this AI where we can analyze the client's investment needs, money they have to invest, goals, net worth, needs, career risks, private holdings, to build a highly personalized portfolio of individual stocks, bonds, other assets on the individual client level. We then provide the tools to automate the management of the portfolio, so active rebalancing, tax loss harvesting, with the icing on the cake as we call portfolio intelligence, or otherwise intelligence that tells the story of the portfolio. So the story, the justifications, the why, so the advisor can not only look smarter to their client, but better educate their client on the why behind their portfolio. So the thesis okay. behind the company is the advisor's their relationship with their client, and we do everything else in an automated yet personalized way. I am all for people who do everything else in my world. All right, so let's uh, let's dive into the history here. So what was the origin of Vise? What led you to say something's broken, let's fix it? Of course. So the two of us have this machine learning background, not necessarily a finance background. We got, after a prior startup, got introduced to a opportunity to consult in the investment management space, and namely in artificial intelligence, and it ended up being an artificial intelligence in money management. And uh, mm-hmm. we started consulting with firms like Deutsche Bank and Mass Mutual and RBC Royal, like all the big bulge bracket banks. And what we realized was two important things. First, the wealth management industry was a huge part of the financial services space, you know, made up 50% of more revenues from Morgan Stanley, 30% of revenues from Goldman Sachs. That's really massive. But most wealth managers were salespeople. They were relationship managers. They weren't necessarily that financial analysts you believe them to be, or most clients, I guess, do, with all the market wisdom that were you know, great relationship managers. And then we can second, debate the value of market wisdom later. Exactly. The academics don't debate it. It's pretty clear cut, but continue. But there's also this other yeah. trend that's really interesting, which was breakaway advisors. More and more advisors every year were breaking away and bringing billions and billions of dollars with them, saying, hey, I don't want to work at Morgan Stanley anymore. It doesn't make sense for me. I want to go independent. We realized was there was no Shopify-esque system. There was no kind of system that built the rails for the independent advisor and kind of enabled them to compete against the big big players. We realized that there was an opportunity for us to build the platform that the independents sit on top of that will allow them to focus on their greatest superpower, relationship management, so we could focus on building the best portfolios for their clients. As a Canadian, I always get a little giddy when someone mentions Shopify or any other Canadian player doing the right thing, not when they mention a Canadian bank like Royal, different story. So you basically went in and you looked at the situation and probably you know, were shocked and abject horror of the current state of affairs and technology. Maybe not, but let's, let's, so you went in there and what did you see that was, so you were missing the kind of turnkey, simple experience for the breakaways, the guys who were turning probably to the RAA channel in general to basically simply provide a high level of customization. Is that pretty much sum it up? Yeah, I think what we saw is, first of all, like you had said, like 
wealth technology hadn't been updated in 20 years. Most of these large institutional players, let alone the technology platforms available for independents, yeah. were archaic, old, hard to manage. You know, we've interacted with, and you know, I won't name specific names, but we've interacted with independent advisors who've been using a specific technology platform for 10, 15 years and still can't use it properly and you know, had to go through like a week's worth of seminars just to better understand what is everything that that platform does. The second is almost like this request that we got from institutions when consulting around customization. You know, everyone saw the last trend in the wealth management space has actually just been trying to get wealth management to the masses, whether that's through robo-advice or model portfolios as a way to expand book of businesses for independent advisors. You know, we think the next big trend and, and kind of we saw from institutions is personalization. You know, now that you have all of these models, how do you personalize and customize them in a way that is better for that client over the long term and accounts for all of their specific needs? Yeah, I mean, personalization, it's interesting because like we'll call it in the old school approach in the current systems in a lot of places is that and I've met countless advisors who think they're doing a wonderful job for people and they'll hold like 30 different funds and there's so much overlap and so much nonsense going on there. It's hard to get that. Like this, the current systems just don't support the ability to personalize. And that's why the current paradigm model portfolios make so much sense because can someone monitor a dozen to two dozen portfolios and make sure that they're accurate and that they're being, they're doing the job they're supposed to? Yeah. But what you're, ta- you're talking about is now using technology to go back a step in the right way, which is to basically tinker and twist and, and, and play with the portfolio such that it meets the unique specific needs of that client. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. You've got a ton of different funds. You don't know what your client's exposed to. You know, your client doesn't understand what's invest- what they're invested in, why they're invested in it, and more importantly, yep. where their exposure sits, right? If they work at Facebook, they work at Google or any major tech company or any company with stock options, right? Yep. They could be overexposed to their industry and overexposed to their specific securities and their public market portfolio. The advisor yep. and the client probably know none the wiser. Just really quick, yeah, it's interesting to see how... Um, the industry is built on this idea of a group of managers being blended. That's kind of where the trend is, has kind of moved towards. What's really interesting is it's like managers don't interact with each other at all. And so in most cases, you have pretty significant overexposure because one manager thinks you know, securities like Apple and et cetera are value securities, while the other manager may think they're growth securities. And so yep. if you have both value and growth exposure, you're actually overexposed to the intersection of the two. Yeah, I mean, that's further compounded if a client decides to deal with more than one financial planner or financial advisor, whatever it is, because, yeah, you have no idea what portfolio that other person is putting them in, right? And even if they both, or risk tolerance, I mean, like, it, it, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole of how many layers here. It's, it's the advisor, it's the, the manager of the fund, it's the ETF, whatever it is, that there could be multiple layers of overlap. So talk to me about your solution, okay? So you develop customized portfolios. Now you're taking them through a workflow. So we mentioned a, cu- a couple of the data points you were looking at. Tell me what the core data points in this customization process are and how you implement them, how they affect the underlying portfolio. Yeah. So the way you can think about it. So imagine a client walks into your office and they say, hey, you know, I've got a million dollars to invest. I'm relatively risk averse. I want to say send my kids to college in 10 years. I care a lot about the environment. So I only want to invest in environmentally friendly companies. I work at Facebook. So I have Facebook stock in my portfolio. My wife works at United in the airline industry. I 
have private real estate holdings in San Francisco, and we have private biotech investments, right? All of those different things factor into, you know, the client's kind of financial story. And so it's important. So the advisor would basically enter that into our system as a you know, questionnaire format, and we would factor in all of these different approaches. Um, and then lastly, the strategies the advisor might want to take. So this is where it gets really interesting. We can customize strategies around the advisor. So if they say, hey, you know, I have a special strategy, like we had one advisor that wanted twice the dividend of the S&P 500 as a strategy or customized value strategy, we can allow them to overlay that on specific portfolios. Take all of that into account, click build portfolio. 30 seconds later, they've got their portfolio. Here are the 50 stocks you're investing in. Facebook exposure has been reduced to zero. You've gotten reduced exposure to technology replaced by consumer discretionary or similar volatility asset class. Here's how the portfolio has performed over the last, say, 20 years during times like 2000, 2008, COVID-19, whatever it might be. Um, and here's how it's projected to perform over the next 20 in order to hit your financial goals. And then lastly, and kind of most importantly, the story, the talking points. So here's why this position is in your portfolio. Here's why your portfolio is built the way it was. And the, the overall talking points for the advisor to be able to deliver to their client to explain this is why this portfolio is tailored to you. So the client has some idea. <laughs> Interesting. So you mentioned United as an example earlier. So you're just looking, at, you know, you're looking at them solely if they hold securities positions within that company, or are you looking at their employment as a risk factor as well? So employment's a really interesting risk factor because it really sucks to, you know, get furloughed from your job and to also have exposure to the airline industry. It's yeah. a double whammy right there. Yeah. So the way we think about that, those types of decisions are really interesting. We make suggestions and the advisor decides whether or not they want to take the risk. So we give them the trade-offs. So we'd say, hey, we'd suggest if this prospective client's wife works at United and we suggest restricting United, the advisor can decide whether they want to accept that suggestion or not. And really the, the benefits to that is United has like restricted trading windows or any public company, honestly, as well as you know the career risk that comes with losing your primary source of income and having your portfolio go down at the same time. So you kind of don't want to correlate your primary income performance with the performance of your uh, uh, assets in your portfolio. That's why we make that suggestion. 100%. I mean, let me commend you on that. I think you're the first trading platform I've seen that's taken into consideration human capital and the risk factors that in capital into consideration of the portfolio. So that is, there's a couple of academics who are going to be very excited when I tell them that. <laughs> anyway, so it's interesting. So we're talking about a number of things here. You've talked about various screening criteria, right? So employers, ESG screens, which are probably, you're probably taking overlay data from various other service providers. So you basically use various screening criteria. You tilt, it sounds like there's some degree to tilting towards factors that either the advisor or the client wants to. Is that about right? Yeah, so the strategy piece is also really interesting. The way that we think about like management today, it's a spectrum. You have active management on one end and passive management on the other, but there's not a whole lot in the middle right now. There are factor-based strategies that exist somewhere in the middle. There are some separately managed account strategies that exist somewhere in the middle, but really you kind of have to pick or choose. You either manage a portfolio on your own or you, you, know, you kind of passively manage it or give it to a fund manager. And so this is kind of somewhere in the middle where the advisor is able to determine their strategies. So we had an advisor who is really concerned with the liquidity that the Fed was providing in the repo markets. And based on that liquidity and the increasing size of the Fed balance sheet was fairly confident that there would be long-term inflation. And because mm-hmm. of that, wants to put his clients in inflationary protected asset classes or you know hard assets and wanted to tilt towards those asset classes in every portfolio he creates. Today, beyond creating a portfolio on his own, there's no way to do that. So he would enter that strategy and, you know, and, and buys 
and that it would exist as a strategy he'd see. And he'd be able to overlay that on top of all of his client portfolios. And then because of that, we would tilt exposure to hard assets. So interesting. It seems like this is all very advisor driven from this standpoint. Any thought towards event driven data being fed into the system to trigger those changes automatically? So we did consider that. Our initial impression here was that we want to marry what technology is really good at and what advisors are great at. And today, there isn't a ton of data that supports sentiment-driven or event-driven like changes mm-hmm. or rebalances to a portfolio, like predicting long-term expected return. And as an advisor, my biggest value add may be that you know, I invest in momentum securities or growth securities, et cetera. And I don't want to adopt a platform that no longer allows me to use that same talk track I've been using for 15 years. And so in a lot of these cases, we allow the advisor to drive some of these decisions. We see ourselves as kind of the infrastructure and workflow platform that executes on these decisions. No advisor thinks that they're the best person to determine the right trades to correctly tax loss harvest, but an advisor might be better to determine how strict we want to be with tax loss harvesting. Do we want to harvest $5,000 worth of losses or $10,000 worth of losses to potentially even offset $3,000 worth of income? So we let the advisor make those decisions. And you know, we like to think of ourselves as like the executioner on those types of things. Fair enough. So when this is all done, I've gone through this questionnaire. I have, let's say, half a million dollars to invest. What does a conventional portfolio look like for you guys in terms of number of positions altogether? Yeah, it's a good question. And so another one of those things that we have a suggestion and then you know drive advisor decisions. So a portfolio can be as few as 30 positions, 25 to 30 positions, 30 individual stocks, or as many as about 100 individual securities. And the advisor can almost change those preferences. The other thing is, is you know, you'll have your, your average US equities asset allocation, you'll have an international exposure, bond exposure. So we come for every asset class. We handle the more esoteric ones via liquid ETFs, things like MLPs, mm-hmm. commodities, non-traded mm-hmm. REITs, like that. You know, but the more broad asset classes like US equities, we actually invest in individual names. You know, we think the benefit of individual names is full transparency into a portfolio. Clients understand them better than you know, a mix of 20, 30 funds. And you know exactly what you're exposed to comparatively to a set of managers or funds. And so that's the approach we take. I think that diverges from, from model portfolios and other, other managers kind of that have trended towards. We've diverged. We've kind of gone back to the gold standards, individual securities. And then you kind of see this you know, really interesting explanation on why we chose what we did and how this is the best for the clients. So if you want to talk about that. Yeah, I actually like to know that. So when you actually drill down to pick those number of securities, you pick your factor weights, your filters, whatever else, how do you like, are you coming up with like a cell matching formula? Like what are you doing to basically implement the right number of securities in the right space? So that's a good question. So that one's pretty easy. The additive value, like the marginal value of diversification is diminishing. And so if you have six companies in a portfolio and you add a seventh, adding that seventh company provides a lot more risk mitigation than if you have 100 companies and you're adding the 101st. So we're pretty confident that the value of diversification between 30 to 40 securities and 75 to 100 securities is fairly low. And we kind of Mm -hmm. show that to our prospects via like correlation to the index. And if we add securities, it's not actually changing the the long-term performance of this portfolio that significantly. And so it's just an input. So in in our optimization VR machine learning algorithm, we'll determine the groups of securities 
every portfolio could consist of anywhere between 30 and 100 securities. And it doesn't have a long-term impact on the expected return in terms of the way that we construct securities and mm-hmm. or construct portfolios, excuse me. And so it's really an advisor input and it goes into our optimization in terms of the number of names we'd like to include. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's there's a known diversification chart that basically charts like number of positions versus actual trade-off on on uh, systematic risk. And yeah, so once we get to 30 securities, you start to see a lot of diminishing returns come into play and that tail gets very long. So yeah, it's, it totally holds. So that's number of pieces. So quite, currently you're, you're you're, you're confident you can execute this. Any thought towards the, the newer trend in direct indexing? Uh, is that something you guys are interested in or just saying, you know, we, could, we think we can pull this off without it? Yeah, so, so we are, uh, like, the way that we think about it is, is there weren't a lot of direct indexing providers when we started. I think that's become a no, much aren't. more... <laughs> um, it's, it's, a mu- it's much more recent. We actually think that we started a lot of that back when we were initially building this platform, initially selling this research tool, individual securities, investing in individual companies was very scary for advisors. Today, I think with commissions being at zero and the technology to help make a lot of those decisions, it's a lot less scary. The way we think about direct indexing is we like building clients their own customized index based on their needs, the advisors, factors, et cetera. If you don't have any customizations, then we can perfectly directly index the S&P. But we think every client has customizations, right? They all have things they care about. They all have esoteric, idiosyncratic risks. Uh, And the advisor always has preferences on where they think the market's headed as well. And so it's very easy for us to directly index the S&P or NASDAQ or anything like that, but uh, much better for us to actually customize that index to that client's needs. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, I've played heavily in the ESG space for a long time. And I often say almost ESG is almost a bit of a misnomer. Like the reality is it's just respecting the client's values and wishes, right? If they don't want to invest in fossil fuel free companies because they're big on the environment, so be it, right? If they don't like labor uh, relations that you know Walmart has, so be it. You know, like we should be able, we should respect that, right? And we should try to respect that while simultaneously still giving them the outcome they're looking for. I've even said so far as like, if you don't like, you know, company XYZ, because you worked at company XYZ and they fired you, you know, you shouldn't be forced to invest in them in an index if you don't want to. However, with the current set of tools, it's difficult. Yeah, exactly. We allow clients to easily restrict securities. So if a client's like, I don't want to invest in Apple, you don't have to invest in Apple. It'd be a pretty hardcore Microsoft guy to say that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think what's interesting there is, uh, is we also try to show the trade-offs of some of those restrictions as well. Is if to me, climate neutral companies is really important to me. I'd only like to invest in those companies. We can show you what the risk return trade-offs of that decision looks like. And so you give the advisor the talk track to potentially convince their client otherwise as well, right? A lot of advisors, you know, are skeptical on some of these ESG decisions, especially, you know, when they're very strong. And so you give the advisor the talk track of, hey, are you willing to trade off 3% or 3.5% a year in expected returns for the decisions that you're making here? And the clients who are okay with that, you now set the expectation that the returns of this portfolio are lower, but you're investing in companies that you care about. And that's kind of the, like, that's the trade-off. I'm willing to pay percent yeah. or 3% in returns to make my money, like, work in the right place. It's interesting that, like, there's this, like, interesting trend of, like, you know, make your money work for you. But a lot of people would never work at an ExxonMobil or at a Chevron. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, why would you put your money there? Uh, yeah, I get that. I mean, it's... Uh... The reality is, yeah, and that's for the trade-offs. I mean, there's plenty of debate. We're not going to get into that. But I mean, quite simply, it's about informed consent, right? At all times, right? 
and they are informed as to what they're owning. They are informed as to what they're exposed to. They feel so strongly about two or three different companies and so strongly about two or three different industries that they literally want no exposure to it. Here's what this would have meant over the last 10 years. Here's what this, you know, we don't know what it means going forward because, you know, it's anything, but this is the trade-off. If they are willing to accept that, so be it. But, you know, it stops being about, oh, you're going to perform. Show them if they would. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. So in terms of uh, feedback, I'm curious. So advisor feedback, positive and negative. Tell me what's, what's keeping people from using your platform and what the people who've dived in feed first have said about why they want to use your platform. Great question. I think, you know, we'll start with the negatives. I think the biggest negative, I think there's only really one. It's I've been doing the same thing for the last 20 years. You know, it's worked for me fine. <laughs> Usually these are with older advisors. I'm not trying to discriminate, but it's a mental shift and how they think about investing, um, which is really important. And we're trying to kind of change that. Yeah, I think you said it really well earlier. It was like, there's this existing paradigm of model portfolios. And we're almost shifting that paradigm a little bit in terms of this new approach of, you know, invest in individual securities. Don't bet on six or seven managers who don't interact with each other, where you don't really understand the exposures. And it takes time, I think, to shift that. And so a lot of the pushback we get are from advisors who might not necessarily be in that early majority of the adoption curve. The benefit is there are enough in the early majority that we can build a pretty big company. And then the later majority is, yeah. well, continue to get excited once you have you know a 10-year track record, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Given who just funded you, yeah, you can. But Samir, further to your comment, it's not discriminatory to say that because young advisors do not have 20 years in the business, <laughs> so they can't get that stuck. But you're right. I mean, it's, uh, I often say sometimes the biggest problem with this industry is the actual advisors themselves because the lack of willingness to innovate, adopt, and change their own practice and evolve with the times, it is what it is. So maybe, maybe what they're having, what they have is working good and working well, uh, but is it going to be is it necessarily, as we discussed, respecting the client's different unique circumstances and their, some cases, moral wishes, right? Yeah, and I think differentiation is so important in this space as well with more and more independent advisors, uh, the advent of robo-advice. You, know, you can't be scared of robo-advice potentially taking your job away and not look for future solutions at the same time, right? So it's, it's important to, to kind of look at even if what exists today works well for your existing business, a new platform might help you grow that business or spend more time with your family so you can automate some of that business or help make your existing business happier and retain it better. Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of our core KPIs with our clients is like three exact things. Like, can we save you time that you can spend with your clients or you know, with your family? Can we help you retain your existing clients better, make them happier? And then can we help you win new business? Right? Like, those are the three things that advisors care the most about. Other than that, around like, you know, investment performance or better research, all these different things, I think they come secondary to those like three asks from your average advisor. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I like the other financial planning heavy people basically say that that's where the real value gets added. And this is about execution. But if we can custom tailor the execution more to their actual preference, then that's that's definitely a positive. So the people who've dived in feet first, we didn't cover that yet, right? So like the people who absolutely are your raving fanatics, what is their feedback? Why do they love what you do? So there's three things advisor really helps them with. The first is we enable the advisors to differentiate themselves, right? If every mm -hmm. advisor is doing the same thing and you are doing this differentiated, personalized approach to wealth management, it allows you to use that almost as a, a sales tool to help you acquire a new business, right? So the best advisors on the Vise platform have been able to like double their business using the platform um, just as wow. a sales. Wait a minute, how long have you guys been around? Not even that long. We've been, we've been out, I would say, 
with our first pilot users since November. Um, and now we're really <laughs> and in that time they've doubled. So okay, well I'm, I'm assuming they weren't at a billion dollars, but you know, nevertheless, yeah. <laughs> worked very well with some of these breakaway advisors. The second is like from a time savings aspect, we enabled advisors to kind of spend like so the average advisor on Vise prior to using us was spending around two hours per portfolio they built. So you know, average client has four or five portfolios, hundred clients, you know. It's a lot of time they're spending on portfolios. And we're able mm-hmm. to bring that time spend down to like, I would say net zero. So we're giving the advisor kind of time back to spend mm-hmm. on what they care about, whether that's asset gathering, the golf course, hanging out with their family. or the Golf course. That's, not, that's a stereotype. <laughs> surprisingly, I would say one out of every three conversations, golf is a um, is, is at least ten minutes of the conversation. Got it. Never, it will never be that with me because if you saw me swing a golf club, you know it would never be a part of point of conversation. <laughs> I'd like to say I play a game. Sorry, I'm not biasing against Canadian advisor. You're a Canadian advisor. We play golf up here too. Okay, uh, but that's uh, you know it's not just hockey and, and donuts, all right, man, uh, and, and KD. But like, yeah, as I, as I always joke, I play something that approximates golf. There's more swearing and the scores are a lot higher. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just like golf <laughs> yeah yeah excellent all right so before we wrap up there's three questions uh that i ask everybody to get them thinking and i'm gonna i ask them both of you so you can decide which one's gonna go first for each of them if you had one wish for something you could change in your company or the industry as a whole what would it be i can go first mine's probably more diversity i think like what's really important in this space is like diversity of opinion I think like diversity of like background, diversity of skin color, all these things are important, but they all lead to one thing, which is diversity of opinion. Like the long-term value of diversity is innovation because you have different thoughts, different opinions that come to mind. And so I think like more people who haven't spent the last 15 years, you know, in investment management should spend time in this industry. Like you know, more people who aren't 10-year, 20-year financial planners should become financial planners because it creates more innovation and honestly just provides a better value add to clients. And so I get the most excited when I meet like young financial planners or young financial advisors who jumped into this and, and have a ton of interesting thoughts and, and, and an yeah. interesting background. Sometimes a substandard background. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, and you're right. I mean, it's, I often say like, even with the pushback, they sometimes see diversity. It's like, look, you can't, all you're doing is providing more life experiences that are diverse into a community's conversation and you can only benefit from that right um and unfortunately this industry and i've seen the numbers from you know from the, CF, from, uh, the cfp board on the diversity of the financial planning industry and it ain't good getting better on the female side not getting better on the ethnicity side unfortunately so that's a major concern because frankly i mean it's, especially when you work within certain cultural communities you better understand if you're from that community right like it's just it's you should have a shared experience Exactly. And I think that's like, you know, the other thing is, is a diversity of people who are providing the financial advice also leads to a diversity of people who receive financial advice, which is almost more important than the former, right? Of like making sure, you know, every community has access to good financial advice, which I think is just a, a better thing to optimize for than making the wealthy population increase their returns by 7% year on year. You're saying that's not important? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding all right so all right that was uh samir what's your answer (laughs) that was a good answer um (laughs) you can we want to copy it i would have copied it but i think more kind of willingness to adopt technology but we're already starting to see that that would have that would have been my answer two years ago yeah 
but you know now like you know as advisors have started to adopt like you know even CRM platforms are willing to adopt technology and other aspects of their practice and just the continued growth there is really important yeah i mean it's a lot better down there than it is up here but yeah the resistance is still crazy i mean the great thing is is that i think that the current generation in particular is so much more time saving than the older software ever was in a lot of ways not all of them I mean, there's some great time savers out there but especially the newer stuff i see come out and like wow that that just took this giant chunk of time and shrunk it to 20 minutes or shrunk it to 15 minutes like how much do you want for this? Because like I get my life back or I get to expand my business and it'll pay for itself. So yes, resistance to technology. I'm a guy who hosts a FinTech podcast largely because there is resistance to technology. So there needs to be a balance there. Second question for you. What has been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today? Hmm. So why don't you go first in this one? Yeah, I mean, I think it was- you Throw one to the bus. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the, the biggest challenge is like, Rudik and I don't have a financial services background. And people had thought like, hey, you know, why are you guys building this company, right? Like there are people, there are old 50-year-old white guys that have been doing this for a long time. Like they're the ones that have the advantage. And our argument was always like, you know, experience doesn't always mean a better product. Oftentimes it means the same product. A new perspective was what builds the best products, right? And we're bringing this new perspective to the table. And it took a while for people to really think like, you know, for, for the longest time, people were like, that's a dumb idea. And now everyone thinks it's the greatest idea and we're getting all the funding and everyone's working. <laughs> great. But you know, for yeah. the longest time, it was us beating down the table saying like, hey, this is the way things should be done. Like we're in essence, like the new generation. And like, this is how we would want our finances managed. So this is how it should be managed for everyone. And okay. for the record, that is a common theme amongst people I interview is there is a disproportion of the founders that literally come from outside the industry. And frankly, in I always, you know, I always say to people, and I even wrote an article about this one time, is you should stop fearing fintech because fintech is going to fix our broken world because these yeah. people are coming out with fresh eyes, not accepting the current paradigm and saying, why in God's name would you do all this heavy lifting or do it this way and just questioning everything, which is the only way we're ever going to get anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I think the my answer is pretty similar. It's more focused around actually the need of the of financial advisors to be in the loop. I think early on is you know when robo advice platforms were doing phenomenally or at least initially had phenomenally good hype. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say that they were doing really well. You um, nailed it, hype. <laughs> and I think like a lot of the investors in our company today, you know, are from Silicon Valley, but a lot of them, I think, early on had either made in investments in robo advice platforms or you know had evaluated them. And the current paradigm in Silicon Valley is that your average financial advisor doesn't provide a whole lot of value and that building tools yeah. and technology to replace them is the right approach. And I think like the way that we got around that is like before building the business, we talked to 2,000 some clients and you know, 250 some advisors and asked them like, why do you choose the, your existing financial advisor? First of all, I think of the 250 clients, like you know, 200 or something used a financial advisor to manage their money. So it's it's clear that like Silicon Valley something's was going on here. Yeah, about the metrics here. And the second is that like they made their decisions on which man, like which financial advisors to use, not at all based on the like historical performance of that advisor or the or their like year on year performance when they've managed their capital. It's things like financial literacy sitting like this. I love this advisor because, you know, anytime I call, he has a couple hours available to sit down and explain to me my portfolio or explain, mm -hmm. to me, you know, specific planning decisions. Or we'll have advisors who say, hey, like I need a villain. Like I, I need someone to call me and say, you can't buy this Ferrari. You can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> um, or someone to call. Those me. are 
never the fun calls. Yeah, sure, you know, as a financial planner, or to yes. call and say, hey, you shouldn't divest from the market right now. Like things will get better. And oh, yeah. there are a very concentrated number of days in a year that drive the vast majority of the returns. And by exiting the market, you know, you're likely reducing your probability of being there for those days. So I think that's what we kind of saw. And, and for a while, we were shouting at a closed door on those things. But once we, I think like once the, like the metrics started to show up, it says like, hey, like the paradigm is shifting. Like independent advisors yeah. grow. That industry grows. Yeah. It's, year on year net of asset growth. And Wealthfront hasn't put them all out of business yet. So something's exactly. wrong with our thesis. Yeah, like, exactly. Like things like independent advisors are growing, not like reducing in any way. And I think after that, we, you know, we have two incredibly amazing backers, uh, tons of backers actually, but you know, institutions and founders fund in Sequoia. You can brag are, about them. Those, that, are, those are big names to brag yeah, about. That bought into that vision, which I think is where why we're here today. Well, if you're mentioning contrarian visions and you name founders, well, I mean, Peter Thiel's no bigger, no bigger contrarian. So, exactly. you know, what's interesting is I've also seen it. What, I, what you say is just so bang on because I have also seen a massive shift. It was a couple of years ago. It's like, why are you throwing money at advisors? They're all going to be put out of business anyway, right? And yeah, there was a, the hype cycle and early growth of, of a lot of the robos and then plateau, right? And difficulty growing and all kinds of other issues. And you're right. Like people are proving, are voting with their money that they do not want to get rid of their financial advisors and that robos only take you so far. So yeah, it's good on you for, for realizing that guys like me are actually a value. I appreciate that. I'm biased. But that said, I think one of the things that sums it up the best is two things. First, two things that I heard is like, yes. These are wonderful solutions that engineers design for some an industry they don't understand was the first one. No, no knocking on engineers, but sometimes when you can program anything, you think you can do anything. The other piece was the, uh, what Michael Kitsis said at one point, it was a comment about, it's a press release that Wealthfront put out. And I think Michael's comment was, oh yeah, they just announced this, further proving they have no idea what it is we do with our time. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, I was like, I think I actually just specifically tweeted under it, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, it was so accurate. Excellent. So you both answered that one, right? Uh, now moving on to the next one, last one. What excites you the most about what it is you're working on and gets you up in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight and keep doing what you're doing? So I, I think the first thing is, I don't know, for anyone who's ever built something before, but building something, like regardless of what it is, is really fun. Just <laughs> but, you know, the second aspect, you know, more relevant to the business is, you know, I feel like we're doing something positive for the world in the sense that we're empowering humans. It kind of aligns with my whole thesis that AI is actually good for the world because it enables, you know, humans to do what they like care about doing or like relationship, social, creative oriented tasks and all the manual stuff is, you know, being automated. And I think we're kind of really... Mm -hmm forward, right? We're allowing our users to spend more time on what they care about doing, right? And every time that we get some excitement from an advisor, it just makes me really excited because it feels like we're pushing something forward. Yeah, I think the same is true. I actually love, I'll go a step further. I actually love end client reactions and their perspective is, is like the end of the day, the way that we think about investment advice is like our customer is kind of the advisor, but it, it really is the end client. Like the advisor is functionally a distribution channel to the end client. When we thought about building this business, we thought, how do we want to deliver wealth management and investment advice. And you deliver investment advice through the financial advisor, but it's ultimately delivered to the end client. And I think that's what is so exciting is like creating a very new and exciting approach to investment management for the end client so that we can do things like ESG, 
industry restrictions, restricting the company that you work for to account for human capital, and also just like comments, like better understanding what you're invested in and like better financial literacy. And so mm-hmm. like, we had an example of, of an advisor whose end client, because they were invested in, in Pepsi, went out and drank more Pepsi and to choose Pepsi over Coke. And the same was true with, with Disney. They canceled their Netflix subscription, got Disney's plot. <laughs> All you these, can have both. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All these things. Well, to you're me, not invested in Netflix, are yeah. you? <laughs> All these things I think are are so interesting to me because it shows like the you know the psychological thought process in investment advice. People really do care where their money is, like the companies they support, as well as just like I think half the battle. Most people don't realize, especially I think both in Silicon Valley and in Wall Street, everyone's so focused on the idea of like how do we maximize returns on a year on your basis. You're missing so many other dimensions. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Most people don't. Don't realize half the battle is just getting the client to care, right? Getting yeah. them to pay attention, getting them to care about what they're what they're invested in, their year on your returns, all these different things. And the easiest way to do that is like to help them better understand their portfolio, which I think individual securities help them bring. And so, like really early on. Samir and I made the decision that like individual securities just makes a lot more sense. And we got a lot of weird looks like, hey, ETFs were built for a reason. Funds were built for a reason. Why are you going back in time? But I think with, you know, commissions being zero and even like the advent of Robinhood, like have you seen Tap One, all of these other companies like- Don't, there is no amount of cars that can be sold to justify (laughs) that, but continue. Like it's just insane. I think what's what's so insane about it is, is people are buying into the ethos of Tesla. Right. You know, yeah. Robin Fraser's are buying into the ethos of like, this is important. Elon Musk is cool and electric cars matter more than any of the fundamentals of that security. And I think like Wall Street and Silicon Valley are just finally realizing that a little bit that like people care about those things. They care about the ethos. They care about the companies that they're invested in. Your yeah. average retail investor can influence the market now. Right. And it's funny, like I saw, I keep seeing like- I, I, just, I will say at some point, fundamentals do matter because uh, I've it, seen this game I before. Agree. It happened It happened in the dot-com bubble. And yeah, at some point, the company's got to deliver. Otherwise, the belief starts to waver. And Absolutely. But, and and, and you're, just as an FYI, our investment management is based based on fundamental data and our expected return exists. The expected return that we calculate is based on those things. I think really this is though is a case study of that like it's in, like retail investors and like people do care about the companies they invest in beyond what the return looks like. And mm-hmm. I think building that into a holistic portfolio is really important. So let me also say that your comment about realizing the consumer is your consumer and the advisor is a channel. Clearly, I think that impacted your UX design because what you've done is something very non-enterprise looking. It is very sleek, simple, user-friendly, gets it done effectively. And often, too often, yeah, the advisor tells you what they want, thinking about what they want, not what the consumer is going to better digest and understand. And too often we fall down these rabbit holes of that. So good job in that regard. So gentlemen, I thank you for your time. This has been great. Uh, everybody can check you out at vibes.com and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, you got some, you got some, some big expectations <laughs> for various factors. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jason. This was amazing. So that was my interview with Samir and Runik of Vibes. And I encourage you to take the time to take a look at what they're working on. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.